When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as a fire, appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty words of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunks, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my tongue was glad. Sorry. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. 
my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus got raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here's the reading. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters from Bethel Christian Church. Uh, I trust that you're all doing well, that you're coping with this um, God-willing brief lockdown. Let's be praying that, uh, praying for our, uh, our government and our medical authorities uh, that they will be given uh, wisdom and help by God to, uh, to manage this situation and that uh, sooner rather than later we will be able to meet again face to face. God's timing is always perfect and uh, he chose that this Sunday when we're in lockdown uh, we would uh, have this uh, mini-series uh, entitled Christ Head Over All Things for the Church, just a three-week series where we'll really, I guess, uh, dig down into more of the theology of uh, what it is to be the church. We've been hearing uh, a lot in the past months from 1 Corinthians about a lot of the outworking of us being the body of Christ uh, and what that looks like in our day-to-day lives and as we gather in worship. A number of years ago, I heard someone give a talk on the theme, what is the gospel, meaning what content should we be communicating to people so that they'll come to a true faith in Jesus. And this person took us through um, a survey of all of the sermons in the book of Acts to show us that we 
we probably need to rethink what we understand to be a gospel message because what we see that apostles preaching in Acts feels a little bit different to what we hear people preaching today. Uh, For example, none of the sermons in Acts unpack the meaning of atonement, uh, how it was that Jesus' death was a sacrifice on our behalf to bear God's wrath for our sin. And uh, one thing that all the Acts sermons have in common is the resurrection of Jesus, something that doesn't always get mentioned in every one of our sermons. And sometimes the resurrection may not even be mentioned in a standard evangelical gospel presentation. The problem with that approach, though, is that it assumes that we can and only look at Acts for a comprehensive summary of the gospel. If that were the case, there would be no need for the four Gospels or the 22 letters to be included in the New Testament. We get a full answer to that question, what is the Gospel, when we look at the New Testament as a whole, not just the sermons in Acts. Luke's purpose in writing Acts wasn't to give us an understanding of the Gospel, but to show us how Jesus was faithful to his own words, which we see in Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The various messages in Acts mark strategic milestones in the work that the risen Jesus was doing, sending out his spirit-empowered people to witness to the gospel out to the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem. Peter's sermon at Pentecost is milestone number one, or maybe we should call it the starting point. There is an advantage, though, of doing a survey of the Acts sermons, and it's that we get an idea of what theme is constantly being emphasised as the church is born and as it grows and spreads across the world as the gospel is proclaimed. And that theme of The resurrection of Jesus is the theme that, without exception, is included in every sermon. And it's clearly the main point of Peter's sermon here at Pentecost. Do you remember the question that people were asking as they heard the sound of the Spirit descending on the disciples in the forms of tongues of fire? And then as the disciples were speaking in different tongues, languages, And people heard the mighty works of God in their own languages. Acts 2.12 And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Peter then stood up and spoke to this very question. His concluding statement is, in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What does this mean, the people ask? And the answer is, Jesus is Lord and Christ. Of course, this term is explained in all of the verses in between. Uh, In 14 to 21, uh, he speaks of the prophecy given by Joel about the Lord pouring out his spirit and saying, this has been fulfilled. 
Now, the Jews knew that the outpouring of the Spirit would coincide with the new messianic age, that those on whom the Spirit would come would be the true citizens of the kingdom of God that would be set up by God's chosen king, the Messiah. Then in verses 22 to 32, he talks about how this Messiah has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, about whom David himself prophesied. While David died and was buried and his body decayed, showing that he wasn't the true Messiah, Jesus wasn't abandoned to the grave, but he was raised from the dead, showing that he truly is the Son with whom the Father is well pleased. And then verses 33 to 36, his conclusion, and verse, <coughs> excuse me, verse 33 is a critical verse. Jesus' resurrection means that he is exalted to the right hand of God. It's now from that position of absolute authority over heaven and earth that he himself has received the gift of the Holy Spirit and so has the authority to give the Spirit to us. That's why in the Nicene Creed we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. John the Baptist said in John 1.33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended and remained on Jesus, anointing him as the Christ and giving him the Father's authority to baptise God's people with the Spirit. So the coming of the Spirit tells us first and foremost that Jesus is Lord and Christ. He has supremacy over all things. He's head over all things. Remember how we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can cry, Jesus is Lord. And we saw that the Spirit's work among us in the church is about making the word of Christ clear. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The church wouldn't exist if Jesus were not Lord of all. But we need to see that the church isn't just uh, merely a side consequence of the Lordship of Jesus. The reason why Jesus has been made Lord and Christ is for the church, as we'll see in a moment. It's because the Father's plan from the beginning was to create a people for himself, who would be his treasured possession, his family of adopted daughters and sons. It's because his goal for humanity was that we would be rulers of creation, filling it, having dominion over it, bringing the goodness and holiness of Eden to every corner of the universe. For this reason, he decreed, set in motion the plan to send the Son to be the last Adam, so that where the first Adam failed in his commission to rule, Jesus would succeed. And in doing so, he would restore us back to that place as vice-regents of creation under God. Now, we've taken the title for this mini-series from uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read uh, part of that passage of that chapter from verse 15. 
For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now note that this passage is a prayer. It's something to be known as a reality in our lives, not simply as a theological idea. It's something that we can confidently ask the Father to give us because it's what he wants us to know, what he will make known to us. See how this passage begins with, uh, for this reason. Well, what's the reason? Well, that's in the immediately preceding verses. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can you see Pentecost in that statement. We've been made inheritors of all the promises of God and sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. We're a people designed to be to the praise of his glory. It's for that reason the spread of the Pentecostal reign of Christ from Jerusalem out into the world to the ends of the earth, even to Ephesus, even to Australia, that Paul then launches into this prayer that we will receive wisdom, revelation, knowledge and enlightenment to see this reality of the Spirit's work. He prays for us to be filled with hope that's secured by the resurrection of Jesus and by the fact that he's not only been made head over all things, but that he who is head over all things has been given to the church. Without the Lordship of Christ, the church would not exist. But likewise, without the church, the Lordship of Jesus would be pointless. It would achieve nothing in terms of God being praised for his glory. We need to see that the church isn't just another of the myriad of human organisations and institutions. It's not just another community organisation. There's nothing like it on earth. And it's the only human organisation that will last into eternity. Years ago, I was speaking to a team of Christian leaders who organised camps for high school youth. And I asked them, what's unique about the camps you run? What's the most important thing that your young people will take away from your camps? Well, they suggested a number of things. Loving community, friendship, seeing good role models, 
skills for life, acceptance and so on, none of them thought to say, we tell them about Jesus. I pointed out that all of those other things are provided for in various ways by other non-Christian camps and youth organisations. The one thing that should make us unique, that should make us stand out from every other organisation, is that we proclaim Jesus. All those other things are good, but they give hope for this life only. And then the grave will bring them to an abrupt and cruel end. Only the risen and reigning Christ gives us hope both for this life and for the next. And the means by which he communicates and delivers this hope is the church. We've talked a lot in recent weeks from 1 Corinthians about the need for church to be a loving community. But there's always a danger that we as a church become idolatrous in that. If our focus shifts to how we love away from the one who loved and loves us, when we talk more about what we are and should do to be a warm, accepting, inclusive community than we do about the Lord Jesus who is our head. Loving community can do something towards alleviating some of the suffering of this life, but it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, coming again. It's only the gospel that can alleviate suffering in the life to come. I always cringe slightly when I go past the church near where I live, which boldly declares on their sign that they are the welcoming church. And another nearby church advertises itself as a place to connect. But we're not here to proclaim ourselves or to make a claim about how good we are at being church. Because the truth is, sometimes we're terrible at being the church. We're here to proclaim the crucified, risen Jesus. That's why we currently have on our banner, and I'm not saying this in any um, prideful way, that we've got it right, Revelation 21.3, which says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with the people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, we're here because of what God is doing by his spirit, not what we're doing. In Ephesians 1, 20-23, what it means for the risen Christ to be head over all things for the church is linked to what Paul means by that phrase, heavenly places in verse 20. This term is used five times in Ephesians and it's the only book in the New Testament where this term appears in that form. So what are the heavenly places? It'll be helpful for us to see how the ancient people of Bible times pictured the structure of the world and the relationship between heaven and earth because that's the worldview that the Bible speaks into. It's the view that's reflected in the creation account. The earth with land and sea is the domain of humanity along with plants and animals. The first heavens, often just called heaven in the Bible, is the sky, what we call the atmosphere, and it's the domain of the birds and the waters above, the clouds that produce the rain. The second heavens are 
beyond the sky and are the domain of the sun and moon and stars, what we call outer space. And then the third heavens are beyond the physical creation. The third heavens are the domain of God himself, along with the angels and the other heavenly beings that we see hints of from time to time in the Bible stories. It's this third heaven that's been referred to by this term heavenly places in Ephesians. Now I want to stress that this isn't a view that contradicts our modern understanding of the universe. In every age, human beings have described the world as we've been able to perceive it from our perspective. What's important in this view isn't so much the physical layout of things, whether the earth is flat around or whether Hades is literally under the ground. In fact, this picture with three heavens isn't set out clearly by the Bible. It's more of a view that's assumed by the Bible writers. The people of the Bible were less concerned with having a scientific view about the physical layout of the universe as they were about knowing who is in charge of the universe, who has ultimate authority, who controls the destiny of peoples and nations, and who will have the final say about justice in this world. These are the kinds of questions they were asking, and they're the kinds of questions we should be asking. Now, in the creation account, we see the sun and moon placed in the second heavens to rule over the day and the night. And they do so by having some impact over what happens in the realms below them. For example, the sun gives light and warmth to the sky and earth. The moon gives light and drives the tides. In pagan religions, they were worshipped as gods. But they don't control creation because they are part of creation. We see that over all creation is God the Creator who rules all things from the third heavens. He made the sun, the moon and the stars. He alone oversees the destiny of every creature. And he placed human beings made in his image to rule over the earth. In effect, bringing the authority of the heavenly places right down to earth. Now the pagan contemporaries of the Ephesian Christians would have said that the spiritual powers and authorities, angels, gods, etc., in the heavenly places, they have dominion over earthly powers and authorities and, and there's an ongoing struggle between earth and heaven that reflects an eternal struggle between spiritual powers to try and gain dominion in the heavenly places. The gods are fighting in heaven and their conflict spills out onto earth. I find it fascinating how today with the popularity of the superhero genre, all the books and movies and TV shows being produced, a lot of the stories are drawing on things like ancient Greek and Norse and Asian mythology. The religious ideas that the ancients believed to be the truth about the way the world was shaped by supernatural beings and gods, are being retold today as fiction. But there's more to it than just telling exciting stories. The reason why these types of stories are popular is because 
Human beings still crave stories that communicate a hope that goes beyond this life and our earthly experience. While we know that these superhero stories are fictional, we feel the need to tell them because we live in an age when the promises of hope for this life and this world just aren't cutting it anymore. We thought we were clever with our modern medicine, yet the whole globe has been brought to its knees by a tiny virus. We thought we were clever with our technology that brought us comfortable and connected lives, yet we're confronted with the fact that our exploitation of the world's resources in order to develop that technology has had a lasting impact on the environment. We thought we would be able to grow out of things like war, yet political and military tension today between nations is just as real as in previous generations. So we, we lap up these stories that tell us that good will still triumph over evil and that there are forces outside of our five senses that shape our world, sometimes for bad but hopefully ultimately for good. And the irony of all of this is that these stories are, after all, only fiction. We feel a sense of elation while we're reading or viewing them, but very quickly we have to return to the realities of life that are devoid of hope. But the Gospel gives us a hope that doesn't fade, because it's not based on fictional stories or myths, but on an actual true story. The Gospel declares to us that there, there is no eternal struggle between heavenly powers. There is one who rules and has always ruled the heavenly places. And he rules with an iron scepter and with an authority that will never be broken. God the Father has absolute dominion over all things heavenly and earthly. And Christ the Son has been seated by the Father at his right hand in the heavenly places and his authority has been declared to us by his resurrection. Christ rules over all the rulers, the authorities, the powers and dominions of both heaven and earth. And now here's the astounding and probably to us incomprehensible thing. The way in which Christ exercises his rule over all things is through the church. It's called his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. The next time Ephesians mentions the heavenly places is to say in verse uh, 4 to 7 of chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, the church, have been raised up to be seated with Christ so that we may share his authority over creation. We reign with him. Our position of dominion over creation, which we forsook in Eden, has been restored to us through Jesus. 
Then we see in Ephesians 3, 9-10, the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may now be known, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See how the victorious reign of Christ is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, not, not directly, but through the church, through us. This declaration is twofold. Firstly, we are the bad news that Christ has declared to the devil and his angels that his destruction is sealed and his power is limited. In uh, 1944 in Europe, it seemed as if the Nazis were winning. They were sweeping across the continent. But then on June 6th, a day that came to be known as D-Day, the first wave of 156,000 Allied troops landed on the shores of Normandy. And that number increased to 875,000 by the end of June. And this day marked the beginning of the end for Germany. They began to retreat. They knew that they were going to lose. In a way, this nearly one million strong army were the announcement to Germany of their defeat. Well, in a similar way, Christ establishing and building his church is the announcement that all earthly and spiritual rebellion against him who's seated in the heavenly places has been thwarted. The victory of God has been assured. The future of the world is secure in his reign because the conquering Messiah is riding out in victory, leading the armies of heaven, ruling the nations with the sword of the word that comes from his mouth. So when in Ephesians 6.12 it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's said in light of what's already been said about Christ reigning in the heavenly places and us reigning with him. Sure, we face a battle with the devil, but it's against a foe who's already been defeated at the cross. We're involved in the mopping up operations. The devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short and he's retreating and just trying to cause as much damage as he can before he faces the lake of fire. And so we're told in verse 13 to take up the whole armour of God. Not, not our armour, but God's armour. This armour is what the reigning victorious Christ is clothed in as he sits at the right hand of the Father with all of his enemies being placed under his feet. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, these are the weapons that he used to defeat the devil. And so the church may now take hold of them and stand firm in our shared victory with him. Secondly, we're not just the bad news to the devil, but we are the good news that Christ has declared to God's angels and the heavenly hosts. 
We're told in Psalm 8 that human beings were made for a little while lower than the angels. And it's uh, Psalm 8, verse 5, and it's also quoted in Hebrews 2, 5 to 10. There was a sense in which under the Old Covenant, angels were in between humans and God as messengers, as mediators of God's word to people, a way for people to encounter God's glory in a in a limited way by coming through a mediator. So angels were given a limited and a temporary authority over humanity. But now we see in the Gospel, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says, that there is one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Human beings in Christ have been brought right into the holy presence of the Father, through the curtain, right up to the throne, to see God's glory face to face. In Christ, the need for angels to mediate the word of God to us has been done away with, because he is the word of God. So if you remember in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where the Corinthians were being rebuked for taking one another to court, Paul said to them in 6, uh, 2-3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now judge here means to rule with justice. The saints will rule the world and will rule over angels. That little while lower than the angels of Psalm 8, has come to an end. We might imagine on the day of Pentecost, the angelic hosts taking a step back and a step down as this new era of the Spirit dawned with the birth of the church, as sons and daughters, young and old, slave and free, were were filled with the Spirit and were empowered to speak the word of Christ and were sent out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. When Jesus said in Matthew 24, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I believe he wasn't speaking there of his final judgment at his return, but of the church being sent out. The day of Pentecost was the loud trumpet call and the angels here are not spiritual beings but the church, God's ambassadors, God's messengers who have been entrusted with the eternal gospel of Christ crucified and risen. Now this is a lot to take in isn't it? It requires a shift in our thinking because On face value, it seems as if things are very different. If we are the fullness of him who feels everything in every way, then why, humanly speaking, does it feel as if the church is a minor player in the affairs of the world? Well, firstly, I think we're always tempted to underestimate the power of the Spirit working in us and through us as we speak the word of Christ. Do we really have confidence in the power of the gospel as the power of God to save all who believe? Do we keep forgetting that 
People come to believe in Christ not through human effort, but by the working of the Holy Spirit through the Word. In a a sense, I'm in a privileged position to see the reality of this taking place before my eyes. I, I get to preach and teach the Word to people over time and I see God working through his word to grow and transform people, to bring them to a place of faith and maturity in Jesus. He does this steadily over time and often slower than we want it to happen. We, we have a culture of wanting quick results, to see things happen overnight. But the Father works patiently in his time, bringing about change according to his schedule, not ours. So as we speak the word in the power of the Spirit, the headship of Christ over all things is being worked out in people's lives and in the world. Secondly, we keep forgetting that those who are greatest in the kingdom of God are those who are servants of all. The Son of Man demonstrated his power and authority over people's nations, tribes and tongues by serving and laying down his life as a ransom for many. This servant kingdom authority isn't manifested by forcing change from the top down like the rulers of the world, but by serving from the bottom up. John Piper says, seeing and savouring the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all things frees you from the slavery of sin for the sacrifices of love. So the reign of Christ, the head over all things for the church, is already being manifested in ways that the world calls foolish, speaking the word and serving. Thirdly, we're still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom of God. What's true now in the heavenly places is waiting to become fully manifested in the age to come. Creation is still groaning, still waiting for its liberation into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Ephesians 1.10 speaks of his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is now the reality in the heavenly places will become the reality in the new earth. Revelation 11:15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, the world's going on its merry way, ignorant of this plan, thinking that we'll just continue as we are, slowly getting better and better, building our little kingdoms, making a name for ourselves. But the church has been given insight into this mystery. We know and enjoy the reality of the present reign of Christ. We've had our eyes enlightened to know the hope to which we're called. We know the great might of his resurrection at work in us who believe. Now all of that then is the long answer to the question asked by the people at Pentecost. What does this mean? What it meant was a revolution. All of a sudden the kingdom of God broke into this world with the outpouring of the Spirit. And the world 
would never be the same again. 3,000 were added to their number just in response to Peter's message. And as the new church met daily, the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And we stand today still on the crest of that wave that began 2,000 years ago. Jesus told Peter that it would be upon the rock of his confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The work that Jesus began at Pentecost, he's still doing and we are the fruit of that work. Let us never underestimate the cosmic significance of who we are and what we do as Christ's church. Well, next Sunday, we'll look at the topic, the life of Christ's church. And Su Kyong will flesh out more of the implications of us being the fullness of Christ. Then the following Sunday will be the mission of Christ's church. And Peter will help us understand and consider what it means to be called as the church into God's mission to gather his people and to, to be part of his plan to bring all things in heaven and earth to their goal to be united under Christ.